Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we will hear another installment from our Nerdy Job series. I almost say like whenever you animate something correctly, it does feel like you're kind of like playing God. (laughs) It's like, look at this little creature I made and I made him dance. But first, we are going to jump right into an interview with someone you probably already know. Her name is Aisha Harris. And she has been on the show before. She is one of the co-hosts of the NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. And from a young age, pop culture has helped Aisha figure out who she was. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, it was really all those hours I spent sitting in front of a TV actually paid off in some way as a kid. Now she has compiled some of her formative experiences with pop culture into a collection of essays called Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shaped Me. The book is a testament to the fact that whether we want to or not, we inevitably learn a lot about the world from TV shows and movies and music videos. It explores Aisha's own relationship to pop culture over the past three decades and some change, both as a consumer and as a critic. Aisha, welcome back to Nerdat. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you. It's funny, as someone who also hosts a very light pop culture show, I think it still gets a really bad rap in terms of like a lot of people just don't take its impact seriously. Yeah, it's weird because like I think a lot of people do, but they don't take it seriously in the way that you would think they would. Mm. Like people are very willing to make the pop culture they consume an identity, Mm. whether it's, you know, being a fan or stan of like a certain artist um, or being obsessed with like a specific franchise and getting tattoos related to pop culture and, and putting it in your Twitter bio. Like that's something that people love to do. But then when you ask them to maybe consider taking it seriously from more of like, okay, but how is this actually like impacted how you think about yourself, how you interact with other people, how you see the world, how you think of people of other uh, backgrounds and demographics. A lot of people might not have thought as deeply in that regard when it it's to me, um, it's it's always intersected with politics and social cues and social hierarchies. And, and I think it's impossible to sort of uh, pretend that the two are completely separate issues. Mm-hmm. So in this book, you talk a lot about the severe lack of of Black criticism specifically. And I wonder how you look at the industry as a whole in the in the year 2023. I think there are lots of Black critics out there today in a way that there weren't even 10 years ago um, in these sort of prominent positions, whether it's at the New York Times or NPR where I am or, you know, uh, New York Mag. I think that we're actually kind of in a peak uh, era for Black criticism. And for me, 
what I have noticed is that we're also in this interesting peak era of Black art mm. and like Black film and, and TV and music being made. And sometimes what I've seen, and this is not usually amongst the Black critics that I've encountered, but it's amongst, you know, the average person, the average consumer or audience member, is the sense that like we don't need to sort of shift our way of talking about Black art, um, even though Black art has really evolved in many ways and is allowed to be more um, audacious and more interesting perhaps than ever before in these larger realms of, you know, quote unquote, mainstream um, culture. And I really wanted to sort of outline how we don't necessarily have to operate from the scarcity mindset mm -hmm. anymore yeah. um, as a Black critic. And, and I think that we shouldn't be only focused on, you know, representation for representation's sake. Um, one of the things that I talk about is A Wrinkle in Time, the mm. um, Ava DuVernay film from a few years ago, and how when I reviewed it um, at the time, I really struggled because I felt as though I had to, you know, be careful about what I said because I didn't, I didn't really like the movie. Mm. And I had been really excited about it because I love her as a filmmaker. I love what she's done um, as a producer and as a supporter of other Black artists in that realm. But the movie didn't work for me. And I felt this sort of burden as like, well, she's the first Black woman to direct a $100 million movie. Like, what if, if I give this How dare you review, dislike it? Mean, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, we're not going to get more things like that. And um, my little review is not going to do anything. You know, it's not mm -hmm. going to make some Hollywood exec say, oh, we're not we're not going to make any more of these. Um, that onus is on the people who are actually greenlighting those things. So I feel like as a critic, I don't have to be concerned with that in a way. And I think it's important to wrestle with this art in a, in a, in a truthful way. Otherwise, to me, it's a disservice to that art. And I think that you know, it shouldn't be treated as fragile. It shouldn't be treated with kids' gloves. Um, I think to respect it is to take it seriously and not just say, oh, I loved it, even if I didn't. Yeah, I think that's really lovely and, and really important. And I love the framing you use in the book, which is, you know, you you say Black art isn't fragile. It's It's about being able to embrace the nuance of something and say it's not perfect and that's okay, but, you know, here's how it can be better next time. Right. And most art is not perfect. Like, <laughs> right. it's just like, you know, even even my absolute favorite movies or shows have something that like I would change or is not necessarily wrong or not necessarily great or good. Doesn't age well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So some things don't age well. Like, so I, <laughs> to pretend as if everything is like 10 out of 10, no notes, like, <laughs> come on, <laughs> it's not realistic. So something I found myself thinking about when I was reading this book is um, a tweet that Brandon Taylor wrote a couple years ago. He's an author. He just came out with a book recently called The Late Americans. And he deleted the tweet, but I was able to dig it up. And essentially he had written, uh, like, nothing is good. There is no such thing as good television or good movies anymore. Just things you align with or don't. And mm -hmm. it was it went really viral at the time. And it was something we ended up talking about it in Nerdette that week because I just thought it was a really interesting idea. And I was especially curious from your point of view as a critic, like how how much you think dialogue has shifted over the years. And I mean, it even reminds me of something Sam Irby wrote about most recently in her book, too, which is all about the idea of just saying, I like it when people criticize things at you and just sort of like, well, it works for me. So I don't know what I'm supposed yeah. to tell you, you know, and I, 
I don't know. Obviously, this is something you've spent a lot of time thinking about. So I was curious kind of what your reflections are on that. It's I, I, I appreciate the idea. Like, I like what I like. I think there's like this level, especially in social media, of sort of wanting to posture and and signal that you like something because it's cool or because it seems progressive mm. or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like you're being an ally or whatever, whatever, um, that I think is just kind of fake. And I don't like that. Um, but I also want to encourage people to actually just like feel comfortable debating with others who might have different ideas than you do about what you like or what you don't like mm. in a healthy way, in a respectful way. Of course. Um, which, you know, on social media is really hard to expect of, of most people. Yes. <laughs> because it's just accessible. Yeah. Um, but but I think like this idea of like you you have to, you know, it works for me. I think that's sort of a deflection mm-hmm. or it's kind of the least interesting way to approach things. Mm-hmm. Like it works for me. Okay, sure. But <laughs> um, why does it work for you? And and that's that's the other thing, is like I I want people to feel more comfortable or feel more um, open to trying to figure out why they like something. Mm. I I use the example of Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play, Mm. which was on Broadway a few years ago, um, and which was very controversial uh, because of how it dealt with the interracial relationships and sex and um, a lot of heavy connotations with that. And there were a lot of Black critics who did not like the show and found it incredibly offensive. And I was like, well, I do like it. Um, and and I felt as though at first, am I, is there something wrong with me? What is mm. going on? And and because I I saw all these critics and some of whom I actually really respected their opinions, when I saw that huge like divergence from my point of view, it made me actually sit down and think more deeply about, okay, why do I like this? Like, what is this doing for me? And I think being able to answer that for myself and figure that out made me even more uh, confident in why I liked it and also made me just engage with it even deeper than I probably would have if everyone was cons- like had the consensus that th- this was a great show and that it was really interesting and trying to do interesting things. I think so, too. I think there's also very few things as pleasurable as going to a movie or reading a book or whatever and then discussing it with someone and just and really unpacking what does and doesn't work and is it the script mm-hmm. is it the acting is it the pacing what if the scene had been earlier you know i think it can be so much fun to to discuss those things absolutely i i lo- one of the things i love is seeing a movie or tv show maybe I love it. And then reading someone sort of break it down why they didn't like it Mm. or why it might actually be bad. And even if I don't agree, I really appreciate when those ideas are laid out in in an interesting manner that makes me really think about it and see a different side of it or think about it in a different way. I don't want to be in an echo chamber. Um, Sometimes it's like comforting to be in an echo chamber. (laughs) I I don't, I don't, uh, I'm human just like everyone else. Mm. Uh, But I also think it's just so much more fun to, to hear views that um, don't align with mine, at least when it comes to pop culture. Mm -hmm. In your introduction, you talk about how when you interview Chance the Rapper over the phone, he wasn't sure if you were black and how that's happened to you multiple times over the course of your career. I thought that it was really interesting to see you like reflect on that in the book. Did you know that was something you'd always put in there? 
Uh, well, that was the first essay that I wrote. And, hmm. you know, I used the Chance the Rapper example as sort of a jumping off point to sort of explore my name, Aisha, mm-hmm. and and my relationship with it and how pop culture in many ways really informed it. And um, <laughs> it was interesting because it, it, he wasn't sure if I was Black. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, at one point during the interview, asked my name to, and, you know, uh, to, and it was interesting because I, I felt as though he was wondering if I was Black or not, whether he could trust me with like some information that he was about to share. Mm-hmm. Um and that's happened to me quite a bit. Like I wrote about how there are people who mistake me for my co-host Linda Holmes mm. sometimes, uh, who is not a black woman. But right. you know, I guess some people think we sound alike. Uh, my mother has even mistaken Linda for me. It's interesting when we talk about you know how people sound or how their name reads um, can be coded in all of this sort of history. And assumptions, and um, sometimes they're true, or sometimes they're based in truth. Um, you know, Aisha, most people would think I'm black, or at least not a white person, mm. um, and that's that's true. Uh, but but it's uh, you know the way I sound is is to them can be in, incongruent to uh, what I actually am or what I look like. It's it's weird. <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, it's I, uh, you're in such a complicated role, you know, at NPR, too, I think, just in terms of like that's it has it is a place that has changed a lot, but that still, you know, ha- did sound a very specific way for a very long time. Yes, absolutely. And and that's that's the other part of it, too, is, you know, when you're at specific institutions, whether it's NPR, The Times or whatever, yeah. they they even if they've made strides in recent years, there's still it's hard to erase decades of whiteness or yep. male hosts sounding like a certain way. Like mm-hmm. that's just it is what it is. It takes a lot of time to sort of break away from those assumptions. For sure. A question I often have for like a film director or something is if they can watch movies without just unpacking every single detail you know like does it just end up feeling like work to Mm -hmm. to watch a movie and I wonder about that in your case I mean obviously you are very much making the case for being able to both enjoy and appreciate pop culture on like a superficial fun cotton candy level but then also be able to analyze it do you ever wish that you could just turn your brain off and watch something (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, yes. And 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 sometimes I'm able to, although usually it's when I'm like under the influence of certain substances, uh, you know, like that's that's Fair when enough. I can just like chill. <laughs> um, but it's it's funny because even when I'm watching something and it's not for work related purposes, uh, like this past weekend, I saw Past Lives and um, I wasn't on that episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour where mm. we covered it, but I went and I wanted to see it because I'd heard great things about it. I very much enjoyed it, but I also couldn't not think about, okay, how would I approach this if I was actually reviewing this? Mm. Um, and <laughs> it's it's frustrating at times, uh, but also I kind of just, I've given in to the fact that this is just who I am. Even the movies that I watch for fun, I take notes on just to like check in and, and, and even the ones I've seen already wow. just to like you know, kind of see where I am, how I feel about it on the on a rewatch or for a first time watch. And I like being able to go back on my notes and because also I just watch so many things and I can't always remember just looking at the, you know, the title of something, what it's about. <laughs> I go back and like I look at what I've watched for the year and I'm like, 
what was this movie? Oh my God, Aisha, taking notes like that, that is exquisitely nerdy. I love it. <laughs> I'm very much a nerd. I mean, <laughs> I don't take, I don't always take like very extensive notes, sure. but like I try to take notes of that, like, oh, I liked this or this scene was cool or this quote, like I, I'll, you know, quotes, especially if mm. they stand out to me from the movie. I have a lot of notebooks, so many. <laughs> so yeah, that was my next, are, and they're literally on pages, like paper notebooks oh, you're yeah. writing these into? Oh Yeah. I I I, lo- I prefer pen paper. Ugh. Um, you know, obviously, if I'm going to to a movie screening, like that's the only option. Like, so you're totally. writing in the dark. And <laughs> granted, a lot of those notes cannot read what the heck well, I yeah. said. And then, like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's just scribbles and words on top of words. And I try my best to to write within between the lines, but like it doesn't work out no. usually. No, that's amazing. So the last sentence of the book is uh, you essentially say that pop culture helped you emerge as a stronger, clearer eyed version of yourself, which is so beautiful. Thank you. I, I think that's, I yeah, it's true. I, I feel, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it definitely has. Um, because I am so obsessed with pop culture and probably can't go a day without quoting something <laughs> uh, just because that's who I am. I think that um, I have been forced to sort of like reckon with the things that that sort of raised me alongside my parents and alongside the, the special people in my lives who I grew up around. Um, I see pop culture as sort of like a fourth adult in the room, I guess, of like <sighs> learning what to do and what not to do or what to avoid. Um, and obviously it wasn't always it, it, it's definitely not always the the. Uh, the, the perfect adult in the room. But I do think I have been able to sort of see who I am and feel more confident in myself by not just pop culture, though, but it's also, you know, buoyed by all of the writing, the people who have come before me who have been really breaking these things down and being critical about the pop culture that we consume, whether that's really been what's been key to sort of helping me make sense of it all and also make sense of myself. Thank you so much for coming on and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. After the break, we are going to hear about another nerdy job. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Up next, we have another installment of our Nerdy Job series. It's our chance to get to know someone's super niche and maybe kind of strange job. And today, we are talking all about animation. Think about the last animated show that you watched. How many people do you think made it? Everything you see has like a very specific job to it. Like the characters being colored in is a job. Ah! 
Birdie, Birdie. The backgrounds they stand in is a job. I'm the hormone monster. The colors of the backgrounds they're standing in is a separate job from just the backgrounds. SpongeBob, you're gonna pay for that. So like everything you see, a, like a different person person got hired to do it. And when all those pieces and people come together just right. I almost say like whenever you animate something correctly, it does feel like you're kind of like playing God. <laughs> it's like, look at this little creature I made and I made him dance. Like, you know, so. That is Tyler Washington. She works at the animation studio Titmouse as a storyboard revisionist, which was definitely one of those jobs where we had pretty much no idea what it meant before we talked to her. I feel like I have to explain what storyboards are in the first place for my job to make sense. But basically what a storyboard is in animation is the step before animating. So we're sort of like architects in a way where we kind of draw the blueprint for what like an episode's going to look like before animators go in and do all the hard stuff like, you know, making characters actually move and talk and things like that. Those storyboards will go to the bigwigs, the showrunners and executive producers, and they will most definitely have tweaks. And that is where Tyler comes in. It's my job to go in and change the things that, like, the people in charge don't like. So say there's a character who's doing a handstand or something in a scene, and they're like, well, can you do a cartwheel instead? I go in and add the cartwheel. (laughs) The cartwheel, it's such a small gesture when you think about an entire TV show or movie. But that single cartwheel was drawn in detailed sequence, edited, revised, and animated by so many different people. Tyler says the job gets even more intense when you're dealing with a super action-packed show. For example, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Those storyboard artists have to, like, really pose out, like, the explosions and, like, the running and the fighting and stuff like that. They can't, like, get away with just... Uh, you know, insinuating that there's like a fight going on. They have to pose out the whole choreography. The revisionists have this really sweet spot in the pipeline where their work has an impact in so many parts of the project. I'm a Capricorn, so I like to have a lot of control over things. We kind of get to handle the script a little bit and we get to plan like how the animation's going to work. And we kind of get to decide all these things like lighting and things like that. Things that matter to other people down the line. But like we get to have our hands kind of in everything, which is kind of cool. She also gets to work from home with her dog in case you were wondering what those sounds were. One day, though, Tyler would love to run her own show. It's a dream that she's had for a really long time. My brother and I had missed the Avatar Last Airbender series finale. Water. I'm like 10 and he's maybe like 12. Fire. So we had made up a plan to stay up until 11 p.m. to watch the re-showing together. So we were sitting in my room under, like, the covers at, like, 11 p.m. And there's the Agni Kai fight between Azula and Zuko and Katara. Sorry, but you're not going to become Fire Lord today. I am. The showdown that was always meant to be. And I was being so blown away, and my little 10-year-old ass was like, Oh my god, I have to, like, top this. I have to be better. I want to make something better than Avatar. (laughs) Because, like, nowadays, I feel like Avatar is what everyone judges animation by. Like, everyone... it's, It's, like, one of... I feel like everyone agrees it's one of the best animated series of all time. And having, like, a kind of sweet moment with my big brother, you know, and, like, us both being blown away and, like, to myself just thinking, like, Oh my god, like, this is what animation can do. And I think that's what drew me to animation. 
And now she gets paid to keep her animation nerdery alive. I'm a huge nerd about animation. You can ask all my childhood friends. I've been really, I've been really annoying about it since I was like 10. So. Before I let you go, I want to remind y'all that time is running out for you to participate in our very exciting 10th anniversary cake decorating contest. This is happening only in the month of June, which means our deadline is coming up on June 30th. You can find all the details of this situation online at wbez.org slash nerdatcake, but I'm going to give you the highlights right now. We are celebrating our 10th anniversary with a cake decorating contest, which means you are invited to participate by making a cake and decorating it in like the nerdiest way possible, whatever that means to you. And then you can either post a picture on Instagram or email us a photo. And just for participating, you will get a super fun 10th anniversary bookmark. And one lucky winner is going to win a $250 gift card to bookshop.org. You can use it to stock up on Nerdat Book Club picks or beach reads or whatever you want. On that website, there's a list of other ways you can participate if baking a cake is just like not your jam. And one of those things you can do is to write a haiku, which Nerd Out listener Cheryl did. And it is delightful. Here's Cheryl. Okay, here is my first haiku since elementary school. Week ends with Nerd Out. Absolutely delightful. Weekend starts with Spark. Happy anniversary and thanks for your wonderful podcast. Cheryl. Thank you so much. That was such a pleasure. You are the best. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman. J.P. Swenson builds our newsletter and Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.